Um, you can stand with me, and we're going to continue in Hebrews chapter 2. By way of a brief announcement, um, we're going to also share a, a budget overview for 2017, uh, briefly after service. Um, initially, we're going to do it right after communion, but um, in the interest of those who are working and serving the kids this morning, uh, we're going to just hold off until about 10 minutes after service. So if you need to go get your kids and bring them in around 10 minutes after service, we'll kind of reconvene and um, share the information from there. So just to FYI. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word. God, I entrust everything that's said this morning to your care. The Holy Spirit would minister to the hearers words that I could never conceive of my own. God, I ask that you would just bless this time together that we have to feast upon your word, to listen to the guidance that you've given us from eternity. I ask that we reflect on Jesus in light of the glory that he is due. Pray, God, that you'd hide me behind the cross, Lord God. Humble me with the content of what is captured here. The Spirit of God, speak to us this morning. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So over the years, I've heard a phrase uh, given as an exhortation to the Christian or those who are uh, just living the everyday life as a follower of Christ, moments of discouragement or even moments of kind of maybe just baseline reality, not necessarily too high or too low, or um, even moments of good times. This constant exhortation that I've heard is that we should preach the gospel to ourselves, remind ourselves of the gospel. And I admit that sometimes I've struggled with that exhortation that what exactly does that mean to preach the gospel to myself in moments of various trials or just everyday life. Um, thankfully, this text gives us cause to examine an, an actual application of that. In this text, we'll see that Jesus is the Savior that we need preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves that this Jesus came to save us and he is the savior that we needed, reminding ourselves that we needed a savior, not just any savior, but this savior. We see Jesus as a man, the actual reality that he came to this earth as a man, and understand that his incarnation, his presence with us on earth 
is unlike anything that we could ever conceive on our own. In fact, the message of the gospel, it's really hard to to think of a way or a reason that we would ever come up with a message like this for ourselves as human beings. In that Jesus, as a man, is sharing this with other human beings on earth is nothing short of miraculous and fascinating, magnificent. And nobody would conceive this kind of message in, in that we would have to admit that we need a savior, let alone a particular type of savior. We see that God's intention towards human beings is beautifully revealed in that he not only speaks to man, but he speaks as a man. 1 Timothy 3.16, here's Paul reflect upon it this way. says, great is the mystery of godliness. He becomes human. He takes on human flesh. In Ephesians 4.8-10, Paul is heard reflecting upon a Savior who ascended, who had once, at once, descended. He was among us. Isaiah 53 communicates it this way, and this is something that is really interesting to reflect upon in talking about Christ and his interaction with mankind. Isaiah 53, too, says that he had no special beauty He had no stately form or no attractiveness that we'd naturally want to follow. So he's a human being just like every one of us in this room. There was nothing outwardly, externally significant about him. So we look at this text and we we see verse 9 starts. It says that, He became lower than the angels. He was made lower than the angels, which means that he takes on the full essence of humanity. See, just for a brief moment, this inconceivable concept of the incarnation. He didn't just become like man in this way where he took on partial traits to to assume some level of relation to us, but he actually becomes man. We see him made lower than the angels, and we have to realize that in communicating that he identifies with humanity, we're not saying that he is actually created. He's made lower than the angels doesn't communicate something of him being created by the Father. But as we continue through these verses, we see that Jesus comes to earth as a man of his own intention. This is his decision to be made known among mankind. He condescends to be with us. And becoming a man, we have to think about it in a very practical sense because it's Jesus that we herald as God is God. But as man, we should reflect on the fact that blood coursed through his veins. He breathed in and out oxygen. He became hungry. He became thirsty. He had to interact with human-based 
social norms and societal customs. He literally dwelled in the community of humanity as a person who didn't necessarily have any special attractiveness. Yet, he's fully, completely God. Now, we don't have time here to to fully unpack the nature of the incarnation, but we see it present here, and we should acknowledge that. This verse continues. We see him made lower than the angels, but actually names his name, the name of Jesus. It's the first time his name is revealed in this text. In the book of Hebrews, the writer has gone to great lengths to establish his supremacy, who he is, the fact that he is from eternity past, the fact that he is the living word of God, the fact that he has made purification for sins, that he is greater than the angels. But this is the first time we see his name. It says that we see Jesus. There's an old song that I grew up hearing, maybe some of you heard. The song just was simply titled, There's Something About the Name Jesus. And the refrain would just go, it is the sweetest name that I know. Now, as I grew older, you know, I understand beyond tradition that there's significance in the name Jesus. But singing that song didn't give me the full essence of what was being communicated there. Because the name itself doesn't make the point. It's not the name Jesus is significant in and of itself. Because many could have been named Jesus in that time. The name Jesus comes from variations of the Hebrew name Joshua. This name is pronounced Jehoshua. And there are sects and religious customs or or, or convictions where People wouldn't even identify themselves nowadays as Christians unless they're using the proper Jehoshua name. And those of us who say Jesus are inauthentic Christians because we're not using the correct Hebrew name for Jesus. Now, clearly, I don't ascribe to that, and and many of us here would not, but the point is you can make too much of the actual name itself and begin to serve the correct uh, pronunciation or the the correct custom or tradition according to human history. But understanding that the name itself doesn't make the point. We understand as we read through this text and the fact that it's named right here, it's what he has accomplished that we respond to. The fact that his name means Jehovah is salvation, is where we get the significance, is where we honor the name Jesus and the fact that it means that he has accomplished salvation for us in the fullest sense. That's why we can worship him as Jesus, because everything about what his name means is true. We continue See that he is crowned, he is esteemed highly, he's crowned with glory and honor. He's given a name that's above 
every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee bows and tongue, tongue confesses that he is Lord. And why? Why is he crowned with glory and honor? Scripture says because of the suffering of death. Jesus is human. Something some people may have trouble with is Jesus is humble. And even more of a controversial way to look at this from a different perspective, Jesus is humiliated. The suffering of death. Now, humiliated from what vantage point? Because there are ways that it could be viewed that this is something that God, the living God, should have never had to do. This is something that God should have never had to take on. This is a presentation or a picture of God that we should have never had to conceive or wrestle with. Humility versus humiliation becomes the contrast. Where in humility, there's a a dignifying sense of placing oneself low. In humiliation, there's a sense of being knocked down a notch or two. We see this contrast of one aspect of willful submission, the dignification of that versus the degradation of being humiliated and knocked down. We see this picture where Peter, we, you may remember where Peter is the one who confesses Christ as Lord. Jesus is asking, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. A couple verses after that, Jesus is explaining that he's going to have to suffer and he's going to have to die. And Peter, in all his zeal, feeling pretty good probably about what he just said. No, you won't, Lord. Scripture says he rebukes Jesus. No, that can't happen. You won't do that. So what we see in Peter is this fear that as I've confessed you as Lord, I cannot knock down this perspective or this vision I have of you by even conceiving that you would suffer to death. You'll be humiliated. We'll be humiliated. This cannot happen. Many of you may remember Jesus' response. He doesn't just turn back to Peter and say, sorry, Peter, you, you don't fully understand what's going on. Peter, let me teach you about this a little bit later. Or Peter, man, I know you trip, man. You just, you just, sometimes you just be tripping. It's not what Jesus said to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. He speaks strongly to Peter. Because what Peter is articulating is this idea that what would happen if the Son of God suffers death, it is a humiliation, it is a victory for the kingdom of darkness. And what we are seeing in his willful submission to suffering unto death is him taking on a holy humility in exactly what he has always intended to do. 
This is not someone being knocked off of a high horse. There's no conquering from the enemy's side and seeing Christ die. This is the most brilliant conclusion to the question of how will men be saved? Jesus says, I must suffer these things. I must do this. His decision is submission. Suffering, death. Pilate decided to wax eloquent to our Lord and Savior and say, don't you know that your life is in my hands? And Jesus says to him, I'm the one who gives my life. I am the one who lays my life down. I have the power not only to lay it down, but to raise it up again. So we see the right conclusion of verse 9. It is by the grace of God that he would taste death. Again, we conclude that he is human. He actually dies. He tastes death and that his heart stops, his vital signs cease, his body stops functioning. And this was a suffering death. This was not a death of natural causes or old age. He suffered for the insufferable, the arrogant, the boastful, the self-glorifying person. He suffered for us. Now, this is the part where some people get off the gospel train. You know, the gruesome nature of Christ's death is seen as this unjust portrayal of an unloving God punishing a helpless martyr. For the sake of your eternal soul, please, I implore you, please do not change the narrative. This is not some helpless martyr being treated badly by an unloving God. This is not how we arrived at this text, even reading from previously starting at chapter 1, verse 1, to land here. This is not how we arrived here. We see Jesus in humility, in decisive submission to God's will, making a missional commitment to become human and taste a bitter death in order to save those who cannot save themselves. This is his perfection. Is not someone you feel sorry for. This is Christ's victor on the cross, cross, but at the same time, Christ, the atoning sacrifice for us, what we needed, the right propitiation for us. This is justice and mercy. This is love and wrath. This is the gift that announces the very grace of God. Do not feel sorry for Jesus. Worship him. Do not feel sorry for Jesus. Worship him. This is perfection. Verse 10 continues. Starts with this phrase that it is fitting. It was fitting. Which again points back to intention. This is the Father's will. This is his design. 
it was fitting for him to do this. This is the Father's will for Jesus to suffer. This is a carefully thought out, purposeful plan. This is design. The literal definition of this phrase or the way that this phrase is being used is to say that it is suitable, it is proper, it is the exact fit. This is consistent with everything God has claimed to be. You should see Jesus as perfect. He goes on and communicates that all things exist and consist through Christ and for Christ. That this act is an expression of the greatness and glory of Jesus. The cross, that we see a bleeding, dying Savior, is the same expression of greatness and glory as the one who writes the heavens and the one who speaks into being the very earth that we live in. The, the same way we can reflect on the glory and the majesty and the power of that. The same attention and reverence and worship that we respond to the cross. What we see and observe in the creator of the world and the sustainer of our existence is perfectly present in the suffering death of Jesus. And as we touched on last week, he brings sons to glory, he brings people into glory who did not previously occupy this place. This is consistent. This isn't something different. This is all working together to communicate to us the same God. That the universe is created with words and the salvation of all is accomplished in the living word. The word that makes creation is also the word making new creations. The word spoken is the very same word that was broken for us. All eternity is brought to bear on this cross. The cosmos themselves are captured in this demonstration of suffering. All those things sound really good, but how? How can we see that? Well, let's just take for a moment the angel's perspective. After we've taken all this time to say that he is greater than the angels, we we also read in Scripture that the angels long to look into these things. They don't pay attention to meaningless events. After all, the angels have their own glory, they have their own majesty, but the fact that they long to look into this should say something to us. As Jesus walked the earth, you'd see several times where he'd encounter people who were filled with demonic spirits, and sometimes the demons would respond and say, Son of God, what do you have to do with us? As the rest of humanity was unimpressed with this man and decided to publicly argue and rebuke him and, and treat him in different ways, whether they were indifferent to him or whether they were disrespectful to him or whether they had some measure of worship to him but still were skeptical of his calling, the demons knew and said, why are you here? What do you have to do with us? 
Jesus was doing has implications of a new heaven and a new earth. He rips a hole in the fabric of fixed reality to create a new pathway towards an incomprehensible possibility. As angels long to look into this concept that we so casually toss around called grace. Grace, this monumental grace, this humanity that had no hope, no chance. We see Jesus literally make a way out of no way. We see Jesus literally announcing that he is making all things new. And we see in the text covered last week that he brings everything into subjection. He makes purification for sin. Again, I have to reflect back to what Paul said. Great is this mystery of godliness. And the writer earlier on, in a warning sense, says that we cannot neglect so great a salvation. Should consider these things more closely. And we should reflect and say, what a Savior we have. And that we are born again, as First Peter would say, into a new hope. And that we cry, Abba, Father, to a God who lives to love us, to extend this powerful, perfect grace to us. He glorifies, he brings sons to glory. Saying this word, don't get hung up on the word sons, but it's not, because it's not necessarily a gender identification, but there's this communication of being honored and esteemed, daughters and sons together. He brings us to glory in this great salvation, reconciling all things where we can finally see that he is the founder of our salvation, the fitting founder of our salvation. King James Version says he's the captain of our salvation. This word is translated to also say the champion, the supreme, the pioneer of our salvation. Hebrews 12 will eventually call him the author and the perfecter of our salvation. He is the perfect sufferer because he is the champion that we needed. And no one else could do this for us. We make all of these fallen heroes out of people and mankind, but this is the champion that we needed. This is the hero that fully represents what mankind has always needed. It's worth saying that in understanding that he is made perfect through suffering, it's, understanding, it's, it's worth understanding that he's not becoming more perfect in that Christ is already perfect. The fact that we see him being made perfect indicates to us that his suffering reveals his perfection. 
and that the kind of Savior we needed was a Savior who suffered. And as human beings, we live this life and, and we may not realize our, our trajectory given to our own natural desires. But the fact that Jesus had to suffer says something about us. The fact that Jesus had to endure a terrible death says something about what was coming our way. So we see his perfection revealed in that he suffers. He lives the perfect life as a human being on this earth, indicating that he is the perfect sacrifice. He suffers for us to endure what we deserve, indicating that he is the perfect pioneer of our salvation. And the fact that he is not only human, but that he is God, indicates to us that he is perfectly equipped to accomplish this salvation. It is fitting that the captain, the founder, the pioneer of our salvation will be perfect through suffering. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. We used to sing this old song used to get on my nerves when I was a kid. My dad would keep singing it. It only had like two verses, maybe only few words, but he just continued to sing, what a mighty God we serve, what a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him, heaven and earth adore him, what a mighty God we serve. Now I read texts like this and, and I reflect upon what does it mean to preach myself the gospel and actually find worth in extracting this truth. This founder of salvation, this pioneer of salvation who suffered for me is the God, the Savior, the redemption that I needed. And then I can reflect and I can express out of my mouth what a mighty God you are to accomplish this for me. The same glory that you are due in creating the heavens and the earth, the same glory is due in that you extend this grace to us. Jesus was speaking to a company after his resurrection in Luke 24. As he's walking with them, he says to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That points us right back to Hebrews chapter 1, 1. And that in many ways, he spoke to the prophets. And that Jesus is communicating this very same thing. Christ had to suffer. We needed the Christ to suffer. He spoke in the past in many ways, and he's still speaking now. This Jesus is the perfect pioneer for us. So what are the, the applications? Very simple 
thoughts, suggestions. For the sinner, those who don't know Jesus or those who aren't convinced or have lived a life as such to where it's been hard to be convinced that you need a Savior. The fact that Christ suffered communicates the desperate need for a Savior that we all have. I would call you to turn from sin, to trust Christ as the captain of your salvation, to toss entirely everything that you are upon him. For the Christ follower, very simple application. Go tell somebody this great news. Now, that's one of those things where you thrust someone out into the evangelism sphere. You become kind of unnerved, like, how do I actually, where, and who, and, like, I don't know where I fit into sharing the gospel. I invite you to participate in this mission. There's a correlation between mission and suffering. A lot of times we don't know what to do with suffering in our Western context. And a lot of times that means that our application of missional activity is lacking. So I would encourage you all to participate in the sharing of this truth. To experience that the fact that Christ suffered for us and that we also will suffer with him. Sharing this truth with someone who needs it. Sharing the fact that this Jesus is enough for every person. It's something that we should all aspire to do some kind of way that we prayerfully and thoughtfully think through opportunities that we have to share this gospel. What a comfort it is to know that the founder of this church was made perfect through suffering. And he reveals his never-ending grace to us. Brothers and sisters, Christ is faithful. This is the king that we worship. This is the savior that we needed. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much, Lord. We are in desperate need of a Savior. Thank you, God, that in your love towards us, you sent us the perfect, the perfect, the fitting, righteous pioneer, founder of our faith. God, I pray that we look to Christ. We worship him because we know that this is the kind of savior that we need in our moments of brokenness, in our moments of fear, in our moments of anger and frustration and self-entitlement and all these things that we are constantly afflicted with as human beings, Lord. We needed a savior. We needed this savior who gave himself selflessly and displayed to this entire world that there is hope.
There is redemption. There is grace from heaven. We thank you, God, just for your word and ask you, God, that you continue to teach us how to acknowledge, how to bow before the founder of our salvation. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.